Hello, folks. Welcome back to another edition of The Sacred Speaks. This is episode number 79, maybe. What is it? 78. Number 79, yes. Episode 79 with Dr. Dr. Bernardo Castro. You don't really say that, but I try to emphasize the fact that this man has two PhDs, one in computer science, one in philosophy, and he can really soar in conversation, as you will hear. He has tons of material out online. I'm going to introduce him in one minute, but first I'm going to get to a couple of the housekeeping issues, and then we will uh, get cracking. So first and foremost, if you are new to the Sacred Speaks, welcome. We offer the Sacred Speaks on audio, so you can listen to it on Spotify, on iTunes, on Google Play, or SoundCloud. You can also jump over to YouTube and check it out with a video component. Um, it's a lot of fun. That community is really growing, and I will be kind of directing folks that way because we've got a new series coming out called The Sacred Series. Uh, wherein I'll be kind of digging into each of these episodes, starting with episode number one and extracting some material, kind of an outlining for a book that I'm working on. So welcome to the process, and if you're new, and if you're not, glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging around. So the, uh, the check it out on Instagram, The Sacred Speaks. Uh, look, uh, look up online. There's a new website coming at thesacredspeaks.com, uh, and there's going to be tons of material um, available on that uh, on that site. So uh, soon. Uh, okay, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, boutique wellness integrative practice that my wife and I started years ago. Check us out at thecenter4has.com. Links will be below. Also, you can hang around to the end of the episode and listen to Clouds by Modern Nations. I've been using their work as the theme music for this entire podcast. Early on in the podcast, I was really integrating music, uh, but things have been streamlined because I think uh, in large part that music was for me. <laughs> I, I wanted to get back into music. So uh, it, was a great, it was a great format to do that. Uh, okay, uh, check them out, modernnationsmusic.com. Toby and Nolan, great guys, great music. And now I want to, oh yes, yes, check out the Esalen class, link below. I will be leading an excellent Esalen workshop from February 28th to March 4th. It is out in Big Sur, and you can click on the link below and register. I'll be talking about shadow and fame. And interestingly enough, you know, we grow up in idealizing other people. We need hero figures. And uh, Kohut, in his self-psychology, talked about having somebody to look up to, having a leader or a teacher or a model, is one of the five most important aspects of ego development. So, and, and we, obviously we need this throughout our whole entire lives. The, the potentials that are inside of us aren't necessarily realized by ourselves. We project it out there onto other people, and we start getting attractive to things out there, unaware that it's really something that's bubbling up in here, and that can be both a very positive thing. It can also be a very negative thing. So it's important to deconstruct some of the images that you have in your life as hero figures or enemy figures to find out what might be going on inside of yourself uh, in relationship to those figures, because... Um, if you let them carry it all for you, you'll never wake up to the reality of the evil or the good that lies within you. So come check it out. It's going to be a fun week, and I'm eager to be on the coast uh, with a growing community. It's, it's, uh, it's a growing number of folks, so please come and join us. Again, look below. Eslin.org is that link. Okay, Bernardo Castrop. So Bernardo Castrop has, uh, pardon me, a shit ton of material. No, that's probably not right. A ton of material online. Um, to, to look at, but I want to direct you to two places. The first is Essentia Foundation, E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org, link below. And this kind of tees up this pretty well. So here's the goal of Essentia Foundation, which he um, is, is a leader of. 
Essentia Foundation aims at communicating in an accurate yet accessible way the latest analytical, analytic and scientific indications that metaphysical materialism is fundamentally flawed. Indeed, clear reasoning and the evidence at hand indicate that metaphysical idealism or non-dualism, the notion that nature is essentially mental, is the best explanatory model we currently have. This is known in specialist communities, but hasn't yet been openly communicated in an accessible manner to the culture at large. Essentia Foundation hopes to help close this communication gap, and they do a great job. Check it out. So much material. I keep saying that. So then also look up Bernardo Castrup at Bernardo, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-O, Castrup, K-A-S-T-R-U-P.com. And he's got a bunch of information, and here he is. Bernardo Castrup is the executive director of Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. He has a PhD in philosophy, ontology, philosophy of the mind, and another PhD in computer engineering, reconfigurable computing and artificial intelligence. As a scientist, Bernardo has worked for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Philips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. Formulated in detail in many academic papers and books, his ideas have been featured on Scientific American, the Institute of Art and Ideas, the blog of American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, among others. He's a fantastic fellow. It was really nice to for him to give me his time. And regardless of the fact that having a conversation with Dr. Castro puts me way beyond my pay grade, I... Uh, These episodes are a gift for me, hopefully you too, but I get to both have them and then edit them and then listen back to them, and so I get a minimum, you know, after the series, four or five listens to all of these folks. So they've really been impacting how I view the world, and this conversation, um, it's interesting that when I had it, there were one set of effects, but then in listening back to it, another set of effects emerged. And uh, and it's like reading a book, you know, as you change, you change uh, what you see. And that certainly does happen and has happened. Bernardo, thanks a lot for the time. Thanks for your generosity. And, and these are, I didn't show them, but check out other books, uh, More Than Allegory. It's a great book. Dreamed Up Reality, Driving into, Diving into Mind to Uncover the Astonishing Hidden Tale of Nature, Meaning and Absurdity, What Bizarre Phenomena Can Tell Us About the Nature of Reality, Brief Peaks Beyond, Critical Essays on Metaphysics, Neuroscience, Free Will, Skepticism, and Culture, Why Materialism is Baloney. I could go on. I don't have all of his books. This guy's written a ton of books. How True Skeptics Know There Is No Death and Fathom Answers to Life the universe and everything. We talked primarily about this one, Decoding Jung's Metaphysics. Um, and I, I only I have one regret. Uh, my one regret is that I didn't uh, book Bernardo for four hours, <laughs> which um, would have probably annoyed him and been great for me. But for the two that you did spend, Bernardo, thank you. And um, I really have Jeff Kripal to thank. Last interview. Check out that interview on Eslin if you want some more information on that cool place. Uh, and I've got some cool episodes coming up. I've got uh, medicinal, everything you need to know about medicinal mushrooms. This is Christopher Hobbs. And we'll be talking about um, all kinds of different shroomies and how you can increase the use of these mushrooms in your home. Uh, of course, also visionary uh, process, visionary mushrooms. And then uh, the following, at some point, I'll be talking with uh, Dennis McKenna. 
Invisible, Invisible Landscape, and uh, True Hallucinations. Uh, he wrote the foreword, I believe, with, um, is that right? Maybe not. With his brother Terrence. A uh, lot of good documentaries, a lot of cool energy. I'm getting into some ecstatic experience through a couple of different religious comparativists and uh, diving deep. So I'm, I'm going to keep going, uh, keep paying attention. And be sure to share all these episodes. Be sure to like the, uh, the social media. And I'm about to get moving in a, in a much, at a much faster pace on these things. So thanks for being around. And uh, for now, we'll leave it there. I can tell you, Bernardo Castro, this has been a long time coming for me. It's got to be weird for you to meet people that are like, I've been thinking about this for a while. But as I was joking earlier, I, uh, I've been collecting your books for a while now. And uh, I was introduced to you by Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, whom I just had on the show last week. And then, as I told you, one of my favorite books, More Than Allegory, uh, Jeff wrote the introduction. So he seems to, I, I must follow him around. He doesn't follow me around, but I, I follow him around, obviously, all over the place. So uh, this is exciting for me, and thank you for making the time. I've been excited. I think we have uh, intellectual affinities. I also see the two volumes of Catafalchi on your yes. bookshelf back there. Yes. <laughs> also one of the more, how to say, enriching recent books from the, I think it was Catafalchi's 2020, from the 2020 crop, I think. Uh, yes. So one of the recent uh, enriching ones. It's a kind of like uh, intellectual calisthenics. You know, when you, when you have two volumes, one of which is only footnotes. <laughs> and I, uh, when I read that book, I'm constantly adjusting and moving back. And uh, it's oh, I didn't a, it's do that. I, I didn't uh, follow the footnotes as I was reading because Peter has this very very particular way of writing he writes as if he were talking and as if he didn't care whether you're following him or not it's like he's conversing with himself um, and i didn't want to miss that flow that pace of his very particular style of writing so i read the whole thing from in one go then i came back and i read it again and then i looked at uh, the footnotes <laughs> <laughs> That I, I prefer your methodology on, on this. I, I find myself really desiring that. Um, I, I, I have loved that, that book. And, and yes, there's, there's some uh, intellectual calisthenics represented back there. Uh, what, what, what got you into Jung in the first place? Oh, that's that, that goes a long way back in time. I chanced upon a copy of the I Ching. Mm -hmm. in a bookshop in a bookshop i was i don't know 13 14 early teens <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah and i yeah. i picked it up and i would normally i would have immediately discarded that as just some kind of silly oracle from the <laughs> east you know those crazy people from 3000 years ago but there was this introduction by carl gustav jung we just started reading and it uh, it struck me immediately as oh this is a rational person he, he's he's clearly not gullible and he's he's not religious didn't come across like that and he provided a sort of a a root of plausibility for the rest of the book uh with the concept of synchronicities and all that and um since then i got hooked i thought well 
this this is uh, one of the sages probably you know you are in your early teens you're still projecting all kinds of things on people and i i was I fell victim to the sage projection on Jung, which I overcome later, but my respect for him, I overcame later, but my respect for Jung was never, never gone. It was not, never hurt even. Withdrawing my projections did not hurt the respect I, I had and still have for him. Yeah, a lot of people still under those projections. Yeah, uh, I mean, Jung was—I uh, mean, he was a perfect receptacle for for projections of the you know, the, the old wise man archetype, uh, and he knew that, and probably he even misused it a little bit. <laughs> That's the power. <laughs> he thing, was human. Right? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Well, so I find it exceptional that you uh, felt two things. You know, uh, interested at that age in that material in particular, and that you also found a concept or an idea as wild as synchronicity is something that's plausible. Uh, that was, that, that's one of the things that almost got him kicked out of the tribe. Or that I, and I loved reading both, you know, really both in your work and in Kingsley's work, how, uh, you know, how Jung was really trying to be accepted and connected into a larger community, but also the ways in which that kind of post-Jungians have really shifted and uh, inserted their own unconscious and sometimes conscious agendas into their interpretations of Jung, which is, of course, a problem with interpretation. It's inevitable, right? It's inevitable in scholarship. Once the original author uh, dies and can no longer defend himself or clarify what he meant, People start making a mess of it. It's, uh, it's, it's the destiny of us all. And it began already with Parmenides at the origin of the Western tradition of philosophy. And then Peter, Peter discusses this a lot in another one of his books. Um, I forgot the name. The title is a single word. It's, it, maybe it's this one right here. Reality. Reality, reality. <laughs> in re there you go. In reality, he discusses about, uh, he discusses how Parmenides was already misinterpreted one generation later yeah. by Plato and the others. So yeah, th this is unavoidable. And of course, we made a mess out of Jung. We made a mess out of Schopenhauer. Um, Hegel, I don't regret much because... Um, he went willingly into this. He was the greatest exponent of obscurantism. So he wrote almost on purpose not to be understood, not to be clear, not to be unambiguous. So that people misinterpret him is fine. Well, you know what? Maybe he was smart in the sense that uh, uh, we all know that we do not know what he, what he really meant because he's so obscure that nobody writes a book saying, guys, it's definitive now. This is what he meant. Nobody dares do that. So it's all up in the air. <laughs> but uh, with Schopenhauer, we did that. With Jung, we do that. No, Jung meant this. And oh, no, <laughs> read more. <laughs> read another book. And you will see that he didn't meant it this way at all. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to... Jung was taken with this... Uh, there's something that Marie-Louise von Franz said at one point about how problematic it is that people aren't educated in the classics. So we not only do we not really have the ground in the language system, we also don't, we're not grounded in their tricks. Yeah. So seals and sealed documents and the way that alchemists and religious esotericists, 
I guess religious esotericism really functions is to is to obscure certain truths about reality, knowing that they can be, uh, you know, the ark of the covenant can be screwed with and tampered with. And I guess that goes to our point here about these lines of interpretation that people just inevitably, uh, to, to use a really gross term, fuck with. Yeah. Yeah. And when people write, they mostly write for the culture and the ethos of their time. Um, and when you're right, you always have multiple layers of meaning. There is the first layer, which is what's written, literally. Mm. But there are other layers of meaning. There are extremely subtle layers of meaning that go into the pace, rhythm, and cadence of what you're writing. Um, uh, which <laughs> the vast majority of people will, will not pick up, but some will. Um, the problem is that those implications, those... Um, extra connotations of what you are saying, uh, things that you're implying through other layers of meaning, um, they do not survive changes in the general ethos of a culture. Um, and, and they are bound to be misunderstood. I mean, today, when Parmenides talked about the one as a sphere, people still go and say, yeah, but of course it's not a sphere. No, he didn't mean a literal sphere. <laughs> You know what I mean? But uh, for you to get into that ethos, you have to be a, a, a Peter Kingsley, somebody who is so fluent with the classics that over the years has already absorbed the ethos, not only of the culture, but of the time that he, he can grasp those extra layers of meaning. But how many scholars today get so deep into their material to be able to sort of breathe the ethos of another time? Uh, certainly, the vast majority of people who write about Jung today do not do that. They, they, they are not there. Because you have to read not only everything Jung wrote, 20 very thick volumes only of technical material plus the non-technical stuff. You have to read other things of the time. So you grasp what the ethos was uh, of the time, what those layers of meaning were, uh, what the, the, the cultural, the subtle cultural associations were that went into choosing a particular word out of 10 possible synonyms. Why did they choose that one? Well, there are cultural associations in vigor at the time that you have to be aware of. It's nearly impossible for the average person to read literature or the classics, not only in classical Greece, but I'm using the word the classics in a more loose sense, uh, literature from previous times, previous epochs. Uh, and really grasp the intended meaning. It's it's nearly impossible. And and it takes somebody who's very excited by encountering that kind of impossibility. You know, or the, very the, excited about the time and the ethos of the time yes. itself, uh, which it, I am, for instance, about the, about the 19th century. I'm very interested and excited about the ethos of that time. That's interesting, but you're also drawing from the well of antiquity, and so how, I don't want to jump too far ahead because when I read you or I listen to you, because I've I've listened to a number of your interviews, <clears throat> and I've also read your work, and I I notice that my <laughs> my feeling about it is okay. I want to go slow. Your language system, first of all, is vastly. On the computer science realm of your background, it's vastly different than where I draw. Uh, 
in philosophy, we come together in interesting ways that we've read some of the same books, I'm sure, and that we draw from some of those same backgrounds. You're, so, so back to what you were saying, you're talking about being interested in the 19th century, yet in order to be interested in the 19th century, you have to go back even further to, to investigate and connect with those who are influenced uh, that are writing then. So talk a little bit about that. Let's get, let's get your lineage here uh, brought up into the <laughs> foreground. Over the years, I've come to accept that uh, my lineage, or at least the tradition I represent, is the Western tradition. For a long period of my life, I was at war with, with this, because I, you, know, you grow up and you realize the bullshit of your own culture, and you start thinking, yeah, I actually, I don't belong in this, you know, uh, no, I'm, I'm probably Eastern, deep in my soul, you know, Hindu, you know, uh, Brahmanic. <laughs> Back to the Vedas, the Upanishads, somewhere there, or Confucius in, in China, you know, something else more sane than uh, the Western hysteria. Um, but over the years, not only have I come to accept that, you know, my lineage, lineage is the Western lineage, but mm. also my way of thinking and, and the values I, I represent and espouse it's the Western values. And today I'm in peace with this, despite all the bad sides of the Western tradition. I am in peace with this. I think the Western tradition has something unique to contribute uh, to the cultures and, and the, the wisdom of, of this uh, world and our species. So I, I, I think you could say, you know, my lineage starts with Parmenides like everybody in the Western tradition. <laughs> Um, Pre-Socratics. I mean, I, I would not say I start with Plato, although Plato is, you know, is is a monster in, in the positive sense, uh, a looming, gigantic figure in this lineage. Um, but if you ask me, what feels closest to me, not in an intellectual sense, but in an emotional sense. Um, it starts with medieval scholasticism, with which I disagree almost completely, but I feel a familiarity with it, a closeness with it. Um, it's very hard to explain. Uh, uh, you know, um, a German uh, Catholic bishop who was also a, a very significant scholar in the Western tradition, a philosopher, uh, Nicolas von Cuse, uh, also alternatively called Nicolas de Cusa, mm -hmm. Nicolas mm -hmm. Cusanos, there are all kinds of names. Um, I was in his birthplace, in the house where he was born in the 1400s, uh, in front of a river that is very significant to me because the margins of that river are my favorite places in the world. It's the river uh, Mosul uh, in Germany. And um, I almost felt like this is my place, you know, this, this, this is not only cues, it, it's me to some extent, as I felt very familiar. And from that into the Renaissance and, and uh, the Enlightenment, with which I disagree profoundly in many ways, but uh, which I consider one of the Western, the West, Western tradition's greatest gift to, to humanity. It's the set of values incorporated in the Enlightenment. And then the 19th century, um, going through Kant, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, 
which I'm very critical of, but can't help but feel like a brother to, uh, which is a very contradictory feeling. I disagree with almost everything he wrote, but I have profound appreciation and affection for him. Um, into the 20th century, uh, in which I think the greatest, most important scholar of them all, um, eliminating science, thinking only about philosophy and sister sciences like psychology, I think Jung was the one who, who, who held the golden chain together during the dark ages of positivism and behaviorism. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he held the link intact uh, during those, that black hole, that, uh, those dark times, and um, allowed to some extent the, the, the renaissance of the early 21st century. We, we, we never realize it until later, right? Realize it in hindsight, but I can tell you we are undergoing quite a significant change in, in intellectual ethos in the Western culture uh, right now. So he held it together by, in, in, in part, by an act of deception. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he, the, the, the trickster in him was alive and well, and he used it uh, for, for good purposes. He didn't misuse it. So he masqueraded as mainstream, uh, a philosophy that was not at all uh, uh, in line or resonant with the, the positivism of his time. I mean, he luckily for him, he died before behaviorism became established later in the 60s. Otherwise, it would have broken his heart profoundly. He would have called it a psychology without a psyche. <laughs> mm. They eliminated the psyche from psychology. Um, yeah, he kept it alive during those dark times. With some pretty radical practices that seem a little insane by cultural standards. He used to, to write about himself that uh, his only peculiarity was that for him, the walls were transparent, which is such a vivid metaphor to, you know, to hit the bullseye about what made him unique. Um, there was no opaque wall between consciousness and the unconscious for him. He could very easily, spontaneously access the unconscious. Uh, uh, what required effort for him was to not access the unconscious, was to remain cooped up within what he called consciousness, which is in fact meta-consciousness. Um, so he, he could cross the river and, and, and bring back some fish for the tribe, if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, and, and he was able to, quote, speak the symbolic, metaphoric language of the unconscious, and then translate it into English, German, that masqueraded as scientific language in the, in, in the era of positivism. It was astonishing what he has accomplished. Uh, uh, extraordinary. A kind what of he a did. wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah, and I... So we'll do this. I think you and I are going to probably ping back and forth between uh, a then and a now. And, and I think it's well positioned considering that uh, at the beginning of one of the most alive books I've ever read in my entire life, the Red Book, he speaks about the spirit of the times and the spirit of the, of the depths. And 
on some level, that's what we're doing when we look in the past. If we don't, if we miss, if we mistake it as totally literal, and we project onto uh, people of the past a kind of primitivism, then then we we aren't connected with that depth, uh, pattern, uh, energy field. And I'm eager for some of my languaging to be uh, shifted as as you and I talk. I'm so excited about this computer science, philosophy, religion. Uh, mystical aspect of what you're interested in, so so he he was very adamant about um, both engaging in mystical radical practices of going beneath, so to speak, the conscious cultural consensus modes of experiencing and interpreting and being in reality, and then back to your fish metaphor, um, and then bringing what he he experienced and saying on some level there are certain universal patterns and forces at work in the depths of those experiences, and we can bring those into a modernized uh, approach that can help us clinically because um, there's something about, he, he wrote a paper once called uh, called Clergy or Psychotherapy, and he was looking at the the kind of secularization of the religious orientation that says, you know, we need to find these modernized, secularized, religious um, uh, interpreters, psychotherapy is of course one of those, in order to approach the psyche in a way that's curative and connected and gets people on some level, and I, I want to see what you say about this, out of the kind of inebriant that culture um, provides us because it, it, it creates a kind of similarity and universality in the soulful uniqueness of the spirit of our own depths. The thing, you know, the elephant in the room that most of us will not talk about, Jung did, um, but he he even talked about it often, and and therefore it sort of became banalized if this word exists, because something you talk often about, people don't see the meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the elephant in the room is that what characterizes the depths, which are the roots of truth, are the roots of what we are and what's going on. What characterizes the depth most are two contradictory qualities. One is profound familiarity, the feeling that, oh, there is the true home. That's where I come from. That's the wellspring of my being. I never left it. Actually, I just became crazy and, and I stopped recognizing it, but it's that ultimate sense of familiarity. Together with it, it's how incomprehensibly scary it is. It is at the same time familiar. And I mean, to, to use the word scary is, is, is such an understatement. Um, it's profoundly, it, it's, it's terror. It's, it's terror uh, to confront what we really are, where we really come from. It's something that we are extraordinarily prone to reject and forget as quickly as possible in order to maintain some sense of center and, and balance and equilibrium. Um, and, and that's why the truth, which is not fragile at all because we are immersed in it, has become elusive because... It, it, it's the makeup of our psychology. We don't want to confront 
what is really going on because it 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 transcends to use a nice word our value systems it transcends our references it transcends everything that gives us a sense of comfort a sense of knowing what's going on what it's all about it 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 it, it it blows up all that, you know, it destroys all that. Uh, it, it, it cannot be corralled into language, into a conceptual framework that gives you some sense of closure. No, it's ambiguous, it's fluid, it contains everything that you hate, uh, because everything that you hate is part of the world, is part of reality, otherwise you wouldn't even have conceived of it. And if it's part of the world, it's part of you. That, that's, that's the hard thing to confront. Um, and what Jung succeeded in doing was couching that in language that while comforting and giving some sense of closure on the one hand, didn't do injustice to the truth on the other hand. And walking that tight line, you know, giving you enough of a dose of it uh, that allows you to, to really see it and not just you know, a misportrayal of it, a caricature of it, while not giving you so much that you back off as a neat jerk reaction, you back off and you turn your face and you close your eyes to it, to walk that line, to find that balance that gives you a illusion of closure, like you seem to have a handle on it. We are talking about archetypes, there is this archetype, there is that archetype, and they manifest this and that way. Oh yeah, I think I, I, think I understand this. And yeah, this is all part of me. And then you get close to it, you get close to that boundary of terror under the illusion that uh, our conceptual mind, which is so young, was born yesterday, uh, uh, can get some sort of a grip on it, uh, uh, which sort of makes us feel brave enough to get close enough to see some of that reality. I think that was Jung's greatest, um, well, I, I, I think if you would compile every time I said Jung's greatest achievement was, and there would be 10 <laughs> different things, <laughs> but this was one of them uh, for sure. And that's something that people don't value because they do not see the scope of the problem to begin with. So they don't know that this was a solution because they didn't even know the problem to begin with. I hear this on a couple levels and I want to make sure I'm tracking. <clears throat> on the one level, it seems like we're talking about what one woman uh, declared as she came out of uh, Auschwitz or one of the Nazi death camps was that uh, we all need to be conscious of the Hitler within ourselves. And, and I hear that as terrifying and that it, it, we say this in kind of artful, poetic languages as if, oh yeah, I'm both sinner and saint. But if we say it a little more concretely and that I'm a murderer and I'm also a, a benevolent healer, then, then that maybe makes it a little more serious. The other mode that I hear this on, which is something that I encounter, and I think, I think some of my personality seems to just try to, this is uh, kind of twisted, but try to move into this territory, is, is when we question the, uh, the entirety of our orientation and our orienting capacities, that, that 
what I imagine myself and the world to be are not it, and yet I operate in a world that I need to, on some level, take at face value what the world says it is, so that I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I don't go into a, a, I don't know, chaos. Both both these levels are correct. I would add a couple, two things. I would say it's not only about the evil in us. Yeah, it's deeper than that. It's not only about morality. It's not only about the evil you are capable intrinsically of committing by the mere fact that you're a human and you have a human inheritance. How do you even word this? Um, it's the degree of confusion that um, characterizes what is transcendent. We, we have this, because of our religious tradition, we have this notion that um, in the transcendent world, the other world, that's a realm of clarity, oh, yeah. of good and wisdom. And it's, it's the utopia. All of your problems will be solved. Everything yes. will be clear. You understand the meaning of it all and you will be comfortable and you will be in peace. And I don't think so. <laughs> And that's, <laughs> you see, and that's, that's the thing. That's the thing that's hard to confront uh, is the notion that this state right now is a more or less desperate attempt by the transcendent to make sense of what's going on. Um, that, that's very hard to, to confront. Another thing that I wanted to add is that... Uh, even when it comes to the moral part of it, you know, good and evil and all that. And, and, and again, I, I'm proud of my lineage. I represent the Western lineage. So everything I'm about to say, I'm saying about me too. I'm not criticizing the West from the outside. This is a, a sort of self-acknowledgement of, of what is about us. We are childish when it comes to morality compared to the East. Um, Eastern traditions don't exclude the evil. They, they see good and evil, as Jung put it, as meaningful parts of nature, different degrees of one thing uh, going on. Um, and there is a degree of maturity in that. You know, when you're talking to a child, you say, no, we are the good guys and they are the bad guys. Um, but in the West, we stick to that into late adulthood. There are the good guys and there are the bad guys. And the bad guys are nothing like us. They are different. They are different kind. We have nothing to do with them. We cannot relate to them. There is nothing about them that is like anything about us. Um, this is childish. It's mm -hmm. immature. And it leads to a tremendous problem, which is, when you don't recognize and integrate the evil in you, that's when you become a tool of evil. Because if you're not watching it and supervising it, it will do things that you will not see. And by the time you see it, it's too late. You have already given, given full expression to it. You already picked up a rifle after 45 years of being a decent tax-paying law-abiding citizen you go to a shopping mall and you kill 20 it's too late uh, uh, 
if you let it accumulate and do its thing be below the radar for too long, it's part of being an adult to have a different relationship with evil. To, it, it's part of, of being mature to see the evil, and not only that, but acknowledge that it too has the right to exist because it's part of nature. It too need, it needs its time under the sun, but in a supervised manner. Um, so it doesn't wreak havoc and, and, and doesn't hurt anyone. And, and, and that's the art of maturity. Um, and in the West, we, are, we turned it into a cultural value to be like children when it comes to morality. We call it righteousness. Uh, it's a cultural value to be righteous, to say, I am good and they are evil and we have nothing to do with one another. Guess what? They are saying the same about you. Mm -hmm. And if you cannot get to a place where you see the overlap of these positions grounded in the commonality of our humanity, uh, then war will be waged and you will be a, a channel of evil without even knowing. And this is... Um... This is one reason I, I had this question that came up as you were saying that, and thank you for saying that. I like I like those journeys uh, quite a lot, and uh, I, I found myself wondering this split that happened in the psychological landscape between Freudian and Jungian theory. What we can those are multi-layered uh, signifiers, of course. So with that disclaimer, um, it seemed like there was this kind of or very, I know a number of Freudian psychoanalytic folks, and this is not the approach today. It's not. It's not the approach that psychoanalysis is making. But when it originated, there really was an element of like, no, there's this unbounded, nasty, disgusting part of yourself that is is kind of there, and it it needs to be repressed. It needs to, and it can kind of erupt into your conscious life. the The differentiating factor, I think, from a Jungian perspective, is he called the shadow the that which doesn't fit inside the ego ideal. And, and all of a sudden, then you have this, okay, this orienting image of, of the ego that says, I, I'm not that. But he also said, it, I guess this is the moral split. Not only is it evil, it's also your, the things that would push you, would push you into uh, elevated positions, but they're risky in a culture that might tell you, oh, don't do that, or you don't matter, or don't. You know, so he said something about the shadow being the majority of it is actually really good. It's a unique goodness. Uh, but then also we have these negative parts of ourselves. So I just, I wanted to see if you could kind of juxtapose that origination point of psychoanalytic theory that we, we, we can reduce to the Freudian-Jungian split. For Jung, the shadow was not intrinsically evil at all. The shadow is the parts of the self that are not recognized by the ego. Um, so a shadow of criminals could be loving. Um, and you see that in prisoners who have pet mice in prison and shower that little animal with love. That's the prisoner's shadow. Out in the streets, they would never do that. They would reject that soft part of themselves, that love-giving part of themselves. Um, but of course, in our society, in the West, because we... We have this schism uh, between good and evil, and evil is not only to be controlled, it is to be extirpated. It, it is to be denied recognition. 
it, it, it's much mm-hmm. beyond controlling it so we can live in a harmonious society without crime. It, it, we, we want to extirpate it. And it is that that turns the shadow into a, mostly a force of evil because there is only space and legitimacy for manifestation in society for what is naively or childishly considered uh, the sumum bonum, the, the, the ultimate good. Even in religion, we separated God from the devil as mm-hmm. two uh, dually opposed figures. And that's a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, uh, the devil was just the prosecutor <laughs> uh, in, in God's court. I mean, uh, Yahweh was perfectly capable of uh, unspeakable evil. Um, but uh, with the New Testament, the sumum bonum and all that, that, st- that stuff, we denied nature the right to have intrinsically evil uh, archetypes in it, uh, which is a naive denial because just look at the Serengeti, you know, it's a mm-hmm. bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that natural evil is not the evil as we picture it because what we picture as evil is the, an act that um, causes tremendous suffering in others committed for absolutely no motivation. Like uh, we picture the, the evil person as a person who gains nothing from the evil, who knows it's evil. It's a person like us, thinks and feels like us, and yet chooses for no reason to commit an act that in, in, um, instills suffering in other living beings. Well, guess what? This doesn't exist. Nobody commits an act of evil for no gain. Um, the recognition that we have to have is that there are drivers in drivers in the psyche, instincts and 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 the, <clears throat> how to say things like addiction, for instance. A person who succumbs to addiction doesn't do that for no gain, just because they want to kill themselves. There is a gain. Of course, in the overall balance of things, that gain translates into great loss. And they know it. But every time they pick up a syringe with heroin, knowing that it will kill them, it's not like they are doing that for no reason. There is a short-term gain. There is a psychic impetus involved in that. And so there is behind the murderer. The murderer doesn't, doesn't commit murder just without any gain, there is a, a, a psychological gain of some form, which if you were able to take distance from yourself and recognize all the, you know, the psychological drivers behind your behavior and control them, you wouldn't do. And most of us, thank goodness, are able to do that. But that's something that for you to, to do, you have to recognize the drivers and the impetuses uh, deep in your mind, especially those who you do not want to recognize as part of you because you're profoundly ashamed of them, or you would be if you recognize them. Um, but our entire culture promotes precisely the non-recognition mm-hmm. of those impetuses. So it becomes difficult to control them. The murderer is not somebody like you with the degree of control that you have. Uh, um, and who derives absolutely no psychological gain from the act of murder in the same way that you wouldn't derive. The murderer expresses 
other aspects of, of our common humanity. And if you could put your, yourself in the shoes of that murderer for 20 seconds, you would understand by acquaintance what those short-term gains are. And you would come out of that with a heightened understanding of what's going on. You would not condone murder. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. You would not condone murder. You would still say that should not be done because we have moral responsibility. But now you would understand why it is non, nonetheless done. And by understanding it, you can help prevent it in yourself and in others. And it is that maturity that the West lacks tremendously. It's our weakest point. Our, our entire uh, uh, um, justice system is based on revenge. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's, it's the way a child thinks and feels. Anyway, I don't want to go it's too true. much in a long tirade. I, no. I just talked with uh, my wife and I were talking about this and how frustrating politics, you know, look, I tend to look at uh, what happens in politics like I would a therapeutic couples session or a family session. And our politicians on a global level do the shit that I would jump all over in a family session. I would say, hey, let's reframe how we're talking or why don't we <laughs> change? I mean, uh, you know, mandating something and telling everybody they must do certain things didn't work really well in Shakespeare. Maybe Shakespeare knew something about this. You know, like, let's talk about this. And you get, because you're related, you get some buy-in. But now we're, you know, all... Uh, we don't, it's, it's, there is a group think certainly that happens. Not only are we individually affected by the culture, and so we're subjected to the same kind of principles and laws that are flowing through that culture, but also when you loft that into a sociological experiment, when you have this kind of group dynamic that's happening, then it's even exponentially uh, yeah. exaggerated. It, look, the, it is understandable what the psychology of it is, because Again, I'm not promoting evil. What I'm promoting is the understanding of evil yes, so we that. can keep it contained. To understand evil means to become acquainted with the feeling that compels an act of evil. Everybody who ever committed an act of evil has felt compelled to do it. Nobody does it gratuitously for no reason, randomly. Nobody does that. Um, People commit an act of evil because they feel compelled to do that. And to understand the act of evil is to know by acquaintance what that com compelling feeling is. What is that feeling that compels you to do that? If you understand that by acquaintance, then you understand evil. The problem is to understand it by acquaintance means realizing that there is something in you that could compel you to do that. Mm, yes. It's, it, to understand evil, is, is, it, it's not like it's equivalent to or leads to or implies. No, it is the same thing as becoming acquainted with the potential evil in you. And there is no shame in this, but our society has made it shameful to be mature. <laughs> it's, it's shameful to be a mature adult human being. Who, who has been able to touch the root of what compels others to commit evil in himself or herself. This is a skill 
that is valuable and evolves with maturity, but we say it's bad. We should all remain like little children, the good boys and the bad boys. You know, it, it's sad. <laughs> it is, and it is. Um, you said something earlier, and I, I w- will be in and out of this moral dynamic because I think it's difficult not to make something political or moral because we, after all, these are on some level not only about transcendence in a kind of spiritual context, but it's also about how to be with one another in a kind of symbiotic way. And so if we're not making it political or not making it sociological, then it's masturbatory and that's fine and that's fun, but it's not exactly contributing to some um, uh, other, you know. Yeah, it has become very difficult to be an adult in Western society, yeah. So uh, take a leap for a second. And I have been very curious to know what, I mean, the way you're speaking is philosophical and psychological and religious and mythological and you're you're mining in territory that i'm i this is the play the playground i want to be on what makes me so curious about you is where does computer science step in and how does that inform the way in which you see these other uh, aspects of the playground that i love to be on so much computer science is my childhood passion you know back in i don't know 1980 or 81 i got a zx81 <laughs> Um, little home computer with a Z80 processor. Um, and I fell in love with that thing because you you could give the thing commands and it would do stuff. <laughs> yes, look what I can do. <laughs> yeah. And, and not only just simple commands, you could write an entire list of commands, a yeah. program, and that thing would perform complex work. I mean, wow, uh, I fell <laughs> in love with that. <laughs> Good. Um, and, and of course, you know, it didn't take very long until I cracked the computer open and I looked inside and I thought, wow, this, <laughs> this is luminous stuff, you know? It's, yeah. it's like a, a complex little city here. There's a lot of complex stuff uh, happening here. Um, and that passion never left me. It was repressed for a long time back in 2020 in the first lockdown um, to keep myself entertained I started you know building computers and fixing old computers you still see some still to be fixed here Um, and it it reawoke uh, the child in me because you know I went to computer engineering school I was 17 had just turned 17 it was very early and I had this dream of creating my own computer Um, but then you graduate and you end up in 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 projects involving dozens of people, if not hundreds of people, and you are responsible for a small part of something, but you can't call the whole thing your own. Like my, my first job, two days after I defended my, my thesis, uh, I was at CERN in Switzerland. I was working on the Large Hadron Collider, one of the experiments of the Large Hadron Collider, the ATLAS experiment, and I was working on the data acquisition system. Now, we were a team of about 200 people. And to be more specific, you don't need to understand what I'm going to say, but it gives you an impression (laughs) of what I'm trying to get across. (laughs) Uh, I was working in the second level trigger of the data acquisition system of the calorimeter, which was part of the Atlas experiment in the Large Hadron Collider. In other words, 
uh, if you look at the whole thing, I was responsible for a tiny piece and little bit of the whole thing. Now, that tiny little bit, if you look at it with human eyes and you, and you, and you grasp the challenge, it was very complex. But complex as it was, it was a tiny little thing in, in, in an experiment constructed by three and a half thousand people, not including contractors. Three and a half thousand scientists worked to, at least in my time, I was there in 96, 97, maybe more people joined uh, after I left. Um, so I never had that feeling that I built anything of my own. Later on, until recently, I was working in semiconductors manufacturing lithography machines, which are the most complex machines ever created by, by mankind. Each one of them goes for 200 million, one, one machine. Um, and it, it, as some of our customers used to say now, our company is the only one in, on the planet that could defy the laws of physics. Um, but I was one of 25,000 people working on that thing. So my childhood dream was never realized until mm. 2020. <laughs> and then I decided to sit and create my own computer from scratch, which I did. And it's being sold now by computer museums. Uh, I donated the whole design for computer museums to sell so they can, you know, the museums are having a hard time now during the pandemic because people don't visit museums. They, mm. they are not even allowed to visit museums. I'm now designing a second computer uh, for the same purpose. Um, that passion never left me. Now, sorry, I'm a long-winded answer to your, to your question. Not at all. But it informs me in philosophies that as a computer scientist, I have a very concrete grasp of what it means to do AI, to do artificial intelligence. Yes. I know what those things are. I've built them. It was my specialization in my master's. My PhD, my specialization was reconfigurable computing, which ties in or dovetails with AI very well. And, and I know that there is no such a thing as creating an artificially conscious silicon computer. It's preposterous. People who think that do not know what a computer actually is. And unfortunately, most computer scientists today do not know what a computer really is. And the reason is, is how human knowledge progresses. You no longer learn the basics as a computer scientist. You, you no longer work with the basics. Uh, you assume um, an entire hierarchy of pre-built systems, both hardware and software. We call them libraries, application programming, interfaces, all kinds of layers of abstraction that you take for granted. You assume, you know, mm -hmm. I received this as the beginning of my work. And then you build something on top. And that's what computer scientists are doing today. And these are the computer scientists who go around saying, oh, uh, we will create artificially conscious AI. You know, that's womb envy. You know, Freud talked about penis envy. <laughs> this is womb envy. It's a man who cannot, you know, give birth to a child. So they went into a computer uh, that is conscious like a child. These yeah. people do not understand how an actual computer is done down to the holes and electrons in the semiconductors material. They don't know how it's manufactured. They don't know how it's designed at the bottom level. They don't know all those levels of abstraction that they take for granted. They don't know how those are built. Um, so they lose sight of the fact that anything any computer does can be done with a big enough system with pipes, pressure valves, and water. It could be the I mean, size of a planet, but that's what it's the same. 
I, I want to jump in because if I'm a computer science today, I'm like, hey, what the fu- what the fuck did he just say? Like, uh, wait a second. So I want to give an analogy and see if it's right or if it tracks. It 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 seems like what you're saying is a little bit like what I was uh, talking about earlier that Marie Louise von Franz said in a Jungian context was that. Part of the problem today is that people don't read or know the classics, and certainly we don't know the origin of the language systems that we use. And so we are, and to con- tr- translate this a little bit further, layer upon layer upon layer of abstraction in the kind of mythic or religious or philosophical worldview is layer upon layer upon layer of interpretation. That if I'm reading, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people that I talk with haven't read Jung, they've read. Uh, you know, uh, folks that are wonderful that are saying great things about Jung, and and um, and certainly have their own experience, but then they haven't gone to the source, and that's why I like our buddy Peter Kingsley so much, is because he's and, and I know a number of folks. I interviewed a guy named Amon Hillman who who knows the language system, and they go into the de- depth of the uh, of the sources. Is that is that the same? Does that map? I think it's it's half of it. I think there are two problems. One is what you just mentioned. We forgot we've forgotten the basics, uh, or we don't even get taught the basics anymore. Because you know, in computer engineering, you have five years. You gotta graduate in five years. But of course, computer engineering today entails a lot more than it entailed in 1974. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot more stuff. But you still have the same five years. So what do you do? Do you teach the stuff? that people don't need to know anymore because they already get all those libraries and layers of abstraction and tooling. Of course, you don't teach that. You teach only how to use that pre-existing stuff. So that's part of the problem. Structurally, we, we lost contact with the basics, with the classics in your language. The other problem is that um, and it affects uh, highly educated people disproportionately. And it's cruel in that sense. We do not know what assumptions we are make we are making we are so caught up in a certain system of thinking what thomas kuhn called a paradigm a certain set a set of assumptions and beliefs about what can be and what cannot be uh, we are so caught up in that that we fail to see that that is just what i said it's a set of assumptions and beliefs uh, the more educated you are the lesser the chances that you can see through the paradigm Mm-hmm. And understanding and understand that you are operating in a kind of bubble, that you've lost touch with the firm ground of nature's givens, uh, and that you're mistaking a belief system that within which you were taught, which you, you absorbed by osmosis without even thinking, you mistake that for fact. And a lot of the people going around talking about, you know, artificial consciousness and, you know, conscious robots who should have human rights and all that nonsense, they are so caught up in this, in, in, in this particular paradigm, in this particular set of assumptions and beliefs, that they do not recognize these things as assumptions and beliefs. They do not know what they do not know. Um, and that's the second part of the problem. Okay, so continuing down this rabbit trail is something I'm quite interested in. Uh, Propositional logic, facts, you were talking about facts. So I want to talk about that, but I also want to get into your, I just want you to free associate to, it seems like these days, if we put quantum in front of anything, it, it, 
changes things a little bit. So I want to know what in the hell people mean, because the quantum physicists that I've read and that I trust are the ones who say something like the following. If anybody says that they understand quantum physics, they're fucking with you. Like that, that there seems to be something inherently mysterious. And I get it. that That's hyperbole and that we do understand some things about it. But I want to go into that kind of wildly mystical scientific domain. So propositional logic, quantum blank. Huh. You want me to comment on, on all this? Please. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what characterizes the Western mind most is what we call Aristotelian logic, form of propositional logic, which consists of about five axioms. Now, what are axioms? Axioms are things that our minds consider so self-evident that they do not require argument, proof, substantiation. It's just self-evident. Things like if A equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C. Hmm. You don't need to prove that, right? It's self-evident, it's obvious. So you come up with a list of five of these self-evident things. That's what Aristotle did. And together, they constitute a certain system of logic that we call Aristotelian logic. Now, everything else you derive from this self-evident uh, uh, axioms. Uh, what are the implications of these axioms? That's that's the question. So you start deriving all the implications of these axioms, and that guides uh, your thinking. Whether it determines whether you're thinking logically, coherently, correctly, or not. Uh, so correct thinking is thinking that derives from those axioms of Aristotelian logic, self-evident truths uh, about thinking. Of course, the problem is that um, they are self-evident truths about thinking, your human thinking. Whether they are self-evident truths about nature is an empirical question. And for that, to say it's self-evidently true is not enough. And in the late 70s, there was a big discussion in philosophy about um, whether Aristotelian logic uh, could survive an empirical confrontation with quantum mechanics. And uh, many philosophers, well, at least a couple of famous philosophers thought that it couldn't. There is this, um, let me see, uh, too many books now, I can't, <laughs> I can't uh, find it. But there, there, is a, there is a book that um, written by a famous philosopher who, is, who has died now, um, which is all about this. Uh, is are quantum systems consistent with uh, Aristotelian logic? And uh, there are good reasons to think that, that they are not, that nature doesn't behave in this Aristotelian way uh, at that level. Uh, at our level, of course, it does. Uh, and that's why logic has endured uh, for over 2,000 years, two and a half thousand years since the time of Aristotle, uh, because it tends to work in practice. You know, you, you, if you create a number system or mathematics based on logic, which you can't quite do, although you know, Whitehead and, um, and Russell tried that in the early 20th century, ultimately they failed, but they, they, they went a long way in that direction. If you ground mathematics in logic, 
and you apply mathematics to science, you can predict nature's behavior, which gives us some confidence that, that Aristotelian logic is at least partly correct. And I believe that's the case, but not completely correct. And the interesting part is, what is it in it that is not correct? And realizing that that part is not correct, what are the implications of that? What should change about our understanding of truth if we realize that there is something in Aristotelian logic that's not correct? I think what's not correct in Aristotelian logic is the so-called law of excluded middle, one of the five axioms, which is the notion that everything is either true or false, not both and not neither. Everything has to be either true or false. There is nothing that can be true and false, and there is nothing that can be neither true nor false. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, I think Ones this and is zeros. false. Yeah, uh, we, we, it may appeal to our Western intuitions a lot, but uh, and it and it's hard to dismiss it without going into some more depth. But if you explore the implications of this axiom, very soon you realize that it makes no sense. Uh, let me try to give you an example that is easily accessible. Often in mathematics, we prove a proposition by disproving its opposite. Mm -hmm. So you say, if you say, is there a solution for this equation, this physics equation here, we think nature behaves this way, but uh, for, for that to be the case, um, um, we need to prove that the equation is correct. But it's very difficult to prove that the equation is correct. It's much easier to prove that it cannot be incorrect. It cannot be false. And if it's not false, then because of the law of excluded middle, it ought to be true. So we disprove the opposite in order to prove something. But this leads to all kinds of weird things, like uh, you have no instance of that thing that you think you proved to be true. You cannot pick up one and show, okay, here, here's the thing that is true. Not even mathematically. If, if corresponding to that thing that wh whose existence you want to prove, there is a number, the outcome of a mathematical equation that predicts that thing, you don't get that number, even though, you've proven under Aristotelian logic that that number exists. So you get into a weird situation where you think you've proven that a number of things exist, but you cannot, you, you do not know where they are. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You cannot show them. You cannot even tell yourself, oh, it's that. You, you don't know what they are. You've proven they exist, but you don't know what they are. So have you really proven that they exist, even though you do not know what they are? That's an implication of Aristotelian logic. And the fix for it is what's called intuitionistic logic. Um, and with intuitionism, which is a, an alternative to Aristotelian logic, you get to a version of reality that has some, some flavors of constructivism. Things are only true if an instance thereof has been made either by solving a mathematical equation and making the number at the end and saying, this is the number that solves the equation, or by actually making an artifact or something, some object, but things are only true if they actually can be shown. Here, here it is. 
therefore it's true. In, in other words, if we want to say that something, something exists, you need to show it. Yeah, well, that was the <laughs> word can... I was looking for, exist. Yeah. So Aristotelian logic leads to a strange situation in which you can prove that something exists, even though you cannot show it. You cannot show the thing. You don't know what it is. If you think that for something to be proven to exist, you have to show it, then you have to part with Aristotelian logic. You have to part with the law of excluded middle. And that has all kinds of implications about how we think about reality, what we think can be true or cannot be true, how things work, vast implications, which no interview will, <laughs> will be enough for us to, to explore. Now, books and books have been written about this. Um, but despite all this literature and despite a great many people knowing this uh, in, in the intellectual you know, uh, intelligentsia of our, of our world, mm -hmm. it didn't percolate down to society, it didn't percolate down into the culture. So the culture still operates on this non-constructivist Aristotelian way of thinking about truth, that to every statement, either uh, an existent corresponds or it doesn't. If this statement is true, then it corresponds to something in nature. If it's false, then it corresponds to nothing. So that's Aristotelian logic. And we have very good reasons to think that that's not how things work. Nature may be constructivist. Things are only true if that entity that corresponds to it is shown, actually manifests, actually happens in nature. It's a very different way of thinking about nature. Uh, it, it's not constructivism all out, but it flirts with radical constructivism, with the notion that um, the only reality that exists is reality, this is the reality that is empirically experienced. Everything else is just theoretical entities. We cannot say that they exist. We cannot say that um, fugues exist. We can only say that their effects exist. Mm. Uh, for instance, you can send a radio transmission across a vacuum. And how do we think of that happening? We think of that as an electromagnetic field that vibrates in the vacuum. But wait a moment, it's a vacuum. There's nothing there. What is it that is vibrating in the vacuum? Show me. No, nobody can show you. <laughs> People will start talking about virtual particles, force carrying particles that pop in and out of existence. Show me them. No, you cannot show <laughs> You cannot. These are all theoretical entities. And, and the insight that Aristotle may have been wrong leads us to this more mature understanding that theoretical entities are convenient fictions, that nature behaves as though those entities existed. And that's all we need to predict nature's behavior. It's a, it's a game of make pretend. And that make pretend is very convenient. It allows us to write mathematics that predicts nature behavior. But the only thing that can be said to truly exist is nature's behavior. It's what you see happening, what you measure happening, not the whole theoretical entities that supposedly underlie that behavior. Those are just convenient fictions and convenient fictions, fictions change over time. Newton's convenient fiction was an invisible law that acted at a distance instantaneously to hold the celestial bodies together. In other words, gravity. 
And the French laughed for 50 years about this. What? An invisible force acting instantaneously at a distance? Now, this guy must be on drugs. And they went on laughing for, 20, for, for 50 years in France, uh, uh, laughing of Newton. And of course, the English eventually say, yeah, but they had, they had to swallow their laughs because eventually Newton was proven right because we can predict the movement of the celestial bodies using Newton's equations. <gasps> Not quite. It goes wrong with Mercury. Who solved that problem? Einstein solved that problem. So did he endorse Newton's you know, convenient fiction of this invisible force of gravity acting instantaneously at a distance? No, he had a completely different convenient fiction. Under Einstein, there is no such a force of gravity whatsoever. It's nonsense. Only the fabric of space-time can bend and twist. Show me the fabric of space-time. Well, uh, sorry, <laughs> you can't show. It's just another convenient fiction. And we are getting close to a point where we will abandon Einstein's convenient fiction. If loop quantum gravity works, yeah, time is no longer fundamental. It's not out there. It's a byproduct of microscopic quantum processes. We have to think about time in a completely different way. And if that proves to have more predictive power, our convenient fiction will move. But the important thing, sorry, this long discourse, the important thing, the important conclusion, the takeaway home from all this is to be smart and sharp and understanding and understand that our theoretical entities are convenient fictions. They are important as such. They give us a way to think about nature so we can predict, predict nature's behavior, but we cannot say that they exist out there. They are epistemic, not ontic. They are artifacts of our own way of thinking that helps us understand and predict nature. They may not be things that are really out there because they've been proven to be impossible to not be out there. You know, let's not mix our own conceptual reasoning with reality because we are monkeys. I mean, we exist since yesterday <laughs> in the history of this universe. You know, uh, 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 Homo sapiens exists for what? 200,000 years anatomically or physiologically. But conceptual thinking exists for about 30,000 years. It's, it's not the blink of an eye ago. It's less than that. It, it, it's just, it just happened. <laughs> It just happened to think that we can have a grasp beyond observation of every salient aspect of nature is preposterous. We have to be a little bit more modest than that in our logic and our theoretical entities. So I've got, thank you. This is, this is so rich. <laughs> thank you. Um, two things. The first is that it seems what you're calling convenient fictions, it seems like there are um, uh, place keepers for the place keepers that are based in current imaging or measurement technologies that we have at our, uh, uh, that we've evolved. And so they are related to the ways in which we can image. And even the computer serves a convenient fiction, it seems, because we've kind of adopted that, those metaphor systems into our language. You know, I download something. Uh, I upload so on and so forth. So it, you're saying yes. So I think that's confirmed. Is that we're talking convenient fictions involves a um, 
a collision between our uh, kind of intellectual evolution and mixed with our technologies and the ways that we can measure and image aspects of reality. But then we get into something different that you said, which is there is something of this terrifying nature that is beyond our comprehension, beyond our observation, beyond our imaging. And you said theoretical entities, and I like that you use this term. Now, we presuppose they exist out there somewhere. God exists out there, or um, you know, the devil or the the demon is haunting me, or even the the floating apparition is is uh, is haunting my home. Uh, this gets into, I think, is this the entry point we can make into your book on Jung about archetypes and synchronicity? Because it seems like this is where it gets weird. Because at the top of this page, I was like, shit, we're talking about paranormal uh, outs- Paranormal being that which is outside of what is normative or normal in our modes of understanding or consciousness. And so we can move from UFOs to synchronicity to something I'm going to ask you to interpret that happened to me recently in a little bit. But what do you say to that? Am I, are we tracking yeah, here? But I th- yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think... Uh- can I comment a little bit? Please, go, yeah, please. Uh, uh, look, there are understandable psychological reasons for our tendency to regard these theoretical entities as ontic truths, as things that really exist as opposed to convenient fictions. Because, you know, I, I know an honest physicist, entirely open to idealism, who is not satisfied with the notion that physicists only predict the behavior of nature and have very little to say about what nature is. They want their theoretical entities to be, to exist, not only to be epistemic models in their heads that help us predict how nature behaves. They, they, they want to understand what nature is, not, not only how it behaves, even though the entire scientific method is geared towards predicting behavior and not geared towards understanding what things are. Hmm. Um, so there is a psychological reason there. Now, you, you as a physicist, you feel disappointed if you cannot make a statement about, about what exists, if you can only make statements about how things behave, which is the truth of the matter. So the psychology is understood. Another thing that is understood is that um, since the death of God in the 19th century, through fluid compensation, we try to find other sources of meaning. Since there is no transcendent meaning anymore in the culture, we try to find other sources of meaning. And a big one that we know from terror management theory is closure. Um, if, we, if, we have, if we do not have the meaning of an eternal soul, at least we understand what's happening and we find closure. So that's an alternative source of meaning in fluid compensation. And turning our theoretical, our convenient fictions, our theoretical entities into existence not only things in our mind, but existence out there gives us closure. Because you know, the, the universe may be crap, it may be meaningless, it's all mechanical play of you know, mechanical forces and chance, chance, but at least I understood it. So I get closure, an alternative source of meaning. So the, the psychology is important, but we pay a huge price for this psychologically as well, which is we think we know what's going on and therefore all the, all the mystery and the depth of meaning has gone away 
nature is not a mystery anymore. It's just a play of 17 quantum fields. We mm -hmm. know how they mm -hmm. behave. We, we wrote down the equations. Yeah, there is only one mystery. We can't pull gravity into one of those fields. We have to figure out some grand unification theory, but we've done 95% of the work. There is no mystery. There is no meaning. It's just a mechanical play of theoretical entities mm -hmm. that we think actually exist. These 17 quantum fields actually exist under quantum field theory. They are not convenient fictions. Now, if you do that, the world has become flat. It has lost the, the depth, that dimension of mystery and meaning. Uh, and Jung found, together with Pauli, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, Wolfgang Pauli, no physicist alive with this respect, uh, Pauli. We can res there are Nobel Prize winning physicists that we disrespect. One of them is alive. Um, people make fun of that guy because of his open-mindedness. But Pauli did not suffer that fate. So Jung and Pauli found a fantastic way of to, to bring in that dimension of depth and meaning, to bring it back to unflatten reality, to recover the mystery, the meaning that may be lying behind, hidden behind empirical facts uh, without defying the ontological value of our convenient fictions. Uh, Jung and Pauli, they said, okay, let's, let's pretend, they didn't say quite like that, I'm paraphrasing, let's pretend that all those theoretical entities, all those convenient fictions are really true. They really exist. They are not only predictive tools that are important and helpful because they work, but they don't have really existence. No, they, they do really have existence. In addition to those and perpendicular to those, in addition to all those models that give us causality, that because causality is, is how all of these convenient fictions work in nature through cause and effect. That's how you predict nature's behavior, by predicting the chains of cause and effect. So all of these convenient fictions, they, they get sort of realized or, or, or expressed through causality, cause and effect. And Jung and Pauli went in and said, perpendicular to causality, there is another organizing principle in nature, which does not follow causal chains. It follows chains of similarity, particularly similarities of meaning. Things that evoke the same meaning tend to happen together. So, you know, cause and effect tend to happen in immediate succession. But in addition to this organizing principle, nature has another organizing principle perpendicular to the first, uh, which does not operate according to cause and effect, but operates, operates according to, to uh, things that evoke the same meaning happening together. They are, they are attracted to one another and they tend to express themselves together. Now, if you continue reading the book on synchronicity and, no, if you continue reading the correspondence between Jung and Pauli, he stops earlier in the book on synchronicity, uh, but in the correspondence, they go much deeper. You realize that the final step they take is to say, but you know what? Actually, there's no causality at all. We can reduce causality to synchronicity. And actually they are forced to do that, to avoid an internal inconsistency in the whole theory. 
that part is hardly ever discussed. Everybody says, well, synchronicity is perpendicular to causality, two things happening together. Jung never dismissed causality and Pauli certainly not. But if you read through their correspondence, they admit to each other that if we are to be really consistent with our line of thinking, causality has to be reducible to synchronicity. Ultimately, everything has to be synchronicity. In other words, everything has to operate like a mind because mind thinks in terms of similarities of meaning. That's how minds work. If you see somebody with his arms extended sideways like this and the sun projecting a shadow on the ground and you look at the shadow, you think of a cross and you think of Jesus mm. and you think of salvation. Uh, uh, that's how mind operates. Similarities, similar things that evoke similar meanings happen together in mind. Associations. Associations, cognitive associations. So Jung basically was saying, nature works as a mind. It's performing cognitive associations. Some of those uh, 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 express themselves in the form we call causality, but if you look deeper with a microscope, you realize that they are actually associations of meaning. And that's all there ever is, associations of meaning. So we, uh, in another way of saying is, is that we are the observers of cause and effect. It's, it, it doesn't exist out there. It's a function of our measuring consciousness. It's a function of our partial view of what's going on. <laughs> it, it, there is a metaphor by Alan Watts, uh, the brilliant metaphor. I'm, I'm not too fond of Alan Watts, but it, it, this metaphor was brilliant. He said, imagine that you are sitting in front of a fence, a wooden fence, Then there is a slit and two of the planks are not, were not nailed, uh, touching. There is a little slit, a vertical slit. And you're sitting in front of that slit and you're completely ignorant. You have no culture. And a cat walks on the other side. And the first you see the head of the cat. And then later you see the tail of the cat. And the cat walks up and down along the fence on the other side. And every time you see the head and then the tail. Every single time the head and the tail. You are liable to then say the head causes the tail. Mm -hmm. Why do you mm -hmm. say that? Because you cannot see the whole pattern. You don't see the whole cat. You only see the head and then the tail. That's causality. It's a partial view of the universal pattern. If you could see the cat, you would not talk of causality. You would only talk about that pattern. And that pattern is a pattern of cognitive associations. It exists all at once. In other words, outside time. But because we cannot cognize the all at once, we, we, we sort of we are looking through this lit as this lit traverses nature, we call it time, we talk of cause and effect because we don't see the cat. We see the head and then the tail. Mm -hmm. But all that exists is just a set of cognitive associations in the mind of God, if you will, in the mind of nature. And it expresses itself partly in the form that we call causality. I mean, now I'm, I'm adding to Jung. I'm going further than Jung dared to go. But I would say... This is what he was thinking. It's almost unavoidable to avoid the conclusion that this is what he was thinking. He, he didn't explicitly draw every implication of his line of thinking, but if you extrapolate a little bit, it's inevitable. That's what he was thinking. There is one mind of nature. It has its own set of cognitive associations. What we call causality is our partial cognition 
of those associations. Bernardo, this is freaking awesome. Um, so I want to I want to propose something to you, which is a, uh, an experience that happened to me on the morning that I read, or on the evening of the day I read your book and the chapter on synchronicity. So this is related. Do you mind if I tell sure. you what happened? And then uh, no, I, I'm on the contrary. <laughs> Good. So, and by the way, uh, what I will also say is. I later read the appendix in your book on Jung, and it got even weirder. So I'll say that. And then we'll... <laughs> so years ago, I bought this tarot deck, and I had a patient of mine who was talking about tarot, and I was like, I got to see this stuff. What is this thing? And and uh, she would talk about it with such... Uh, it was so elegant and beautiful. And I thought, well, this is this is like an art project you know how cool i found alistair crowley has a tarot deck and it sat here on my on my desk and the other night my wife and i were hanging out and she said hey uh go get that deck you got one of let's 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 do some of this stuff i said okay uh finally it gets some use before that i told her about reading lord byron i read lord byron's cane and Cain is a story about uh, the, the Lucifer taking Cain, who was the disobedient son, uh, away from his family and showing him the cosmos. And so he rides on the wings with the, rides on the wings of the devil out beyond the time and beyond the cosmos, and the devil tells him secrets of creation and of the world. And I had a fucking totally like anxious. I, I had this part of me. I've already told you that I like weird shit and I like stuff that makes my head explode. So it was surprising to me that when I was reading this, I felt like I was doing something wrong. This, this thing, came, this feeling came up in me that was like, oh God, this is, this is like some really wicked shit. This is, uh, this is demonic stuff I'm reading. And I was so interested in that thing being in me, because that doesn't really fit my idea of who I am. And so I've been working with that. I've been sitting with it. I've been loving it. That's been like, for me, my orientation is when the energy comes up, I want to tend to that. I want to look at it with curiosity. I don't want to judge it back to bringing in the shadow. So I've got this like uh, rule following altar boy inside of me that's like, you're fucking going to hell, man. Like, this is, uh, this is, and I, I, the way I would interpret this is I've got, you know, I grew up in the South and I grew up doing churches and I, I, I just had to have taken in that perspective into my psyche and uh, into my conscious orientation. So here it is. I'm meeting with it on this, uh, on this morning while reading Lord Byron, then coming to a year later. I'm reading your book on synchronicity, and I'm digging into this Pauli Jung piece. I've I've read this work. I've read Amundsbacher and a number of, of course, I've read all of Jung's work on synchronicity. I love this stuff because who wouldn't when you're into this shit? So I I'm sitting with my wife. She does a draw, you know, and she doesn't. It doesn't really work, and she was kind of off. She was trying to do one of these really complex drawings. So I just said, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna just follow this easy one, which is past present and future. So I shuffle the deck and I go to my past and it's something uh, something I can't really interpret. It wasn't very, it's not very necessary. My current orientation was this uh, 
you know, fella on a horse with two swords drawn. It was this very like engaged and energetic image of somebody who's kind of taking on the, and I am, I'm doing a lot of uh, stuff right now. Now for my future, I had asked, what do I need to know and carry with me as I navigate these forthcoming years where I'm, I'm kind of activating a lot of my life? I turn over the third card and it's the devil. <laughs> so we're, we're talking 30 minutes after I shared with my wife this altar boy terror that I felt while reading Lord Byron and curious about. It. I mean, as it happens, I'm not sitting there terrified and I, I'm interested in this anxiety that uh, this is what, and then I get the devil. So to me, I interpreted that as a, a really fantastic synchronicity that connects you, synchronicity, this kind of magico-religious territory that I've been researching for a long time. And so we're talking about entities. We're talking about antiquity. We're talking about sources. I, I just, what does that bring up for you? And yeah. can we... This is so rich uh, territory. Um, I think our circumstance is comparable to a, a five-year-old kid playing a computer game. I, I used this metaphor in one book. I don't remember which one. Um, I, when I was five years old, I, I could play Atari games very well. You know, I, it was 79, Atari, <laughs> the Atari VCS it was called. I had that one. It wasn't, yeah. yeah, it was not even the 2600s. The Atari VCS came out in 77. So by 79, I was playing that thing for as long as I was at home, you know, at night, uh, I, I would be playing that thing. And I got very good at certain games. So I can relate to the metaphor. We are like a five-year-old child being very good at a computer game, playing it very well. The child knows if I touch this wall, uh, I die. Uh, if I shoot that character, I win points. If I go this way, I get to the treasure. If I fall in that hole, I lose points. Now, the child knows how the game behaves. Mm -hmm. and and can negotiate that behavior very well and what it would what is the convenient fiction in the mind of a child there is a little man running inside the television and if he touches that wall he dies right yes and and is that convenient fiction convenient extremely convenient without it you don't win the game that's the story you tell yourself about what's going on that allows you to predict the behavior of the game correctly and be world champion mm -hmm. in an Atari game. That's our position. Our convenient fictions are like the child saying, oh, there's a little man inside the television because the game behaves as though that were true. But is that what's going on? Of course not. There is a 6502 microprocessor talking to a television interface adapter and, and DRAM, dynamic read, read random access memory, on a printed circuit board, sending a composite video signal to an RF modulator that gets into your television and modulates the motion of an electron beam inside the CRT, the cathode ray tube that is deflected by two deflecting circuitries, one driven by a flyback transformer at 10,000 volts, which excites the phosphorus on the inner layer of your cathode ray tube and brings out the picture of a little man running and touching or not touching a wall. That's what is actually going on. Does the child know it? Not at all. 
is that an impediment for the child to play the game very well and be a world champion? No, mm-hmm. you can play the game very well. So we are the child. We play the game very well. Our convenient fictions are very convenient. Nature behaves as though they were true. And that allows us to create technology, improve healthcare, better our lives, go to Mars, land a robot on an asteroid. All those convenient fictions are very, very, very convenient. Does that mean that there is a twisting fabric of space time or 17 quantum fields? No, for the same reason that there isn't a little man running inside your television. Things only work as though these things existed. We are sitting on top of a mystery so vast, it's impossible to even imagine how vast it is. It's much more vast than the mystery of hardware and software. You saw the five-year-old kid playing an Atari VCS. If that kid had seen the Atari VCS's first prototype, (laughs) you know, it was a a, a noodle soup (laughs) of wires, (laughs) all kinds of parts. The kid has no idea what's actually going on. We have no idea what's actually going on. And it is a tragedy that we tell ourselves that we do that we tell ourselves there there is a real little man running around inside the television and that's all there is to it. There is no mystery. There is no uh, noodle soup of hardware and complex software in an incredibly intricate dance to move an electron beam inside my television to display these images to me, which actually don't exist. I only think that they are images because of phosphorus retention. All there is is just a beam zigzagging (laughs) on the screen. That's our position. We are the five-year-old kid. And we tell ourselves, no, we must know what's going on because we can develop technology that works. Look, I'm talking to you across an ocean. (laughs) So we must have gotten it wrong. No, sorry, we must have gotten it right, right? Right? No, the kid can be world champion in computer games without having the faintest clue about what goes into the hardware and software that makes that game possible. With the fact that we can develop great technology that works does not mean that we know what's going on. We don't fucking know what's going on. <laughs> Thank goodness. Well, I, and I don't know that we can. Like, so my fa- one of my favorite of scenes not. in the we movie. monkeys. Yeah. We popped into existence yesterday. <laughs> the monkeys fucking around here. So uh, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in a movie is at the end of Contact. Spoil, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to say the end. They did this so well. They, they, she goes, blasts off, transcends time and space, is gone for a millisecond on Earth, but she is catapulted into some other dimension, and she sees this image walking up to her on the beach. And it, the image starts to clarify, and all of a sudden, it's her father. And she starts crying, and she says, Father, yeah. um, and, and is that you? And the entity says, no. I just figured that this would make you feel safe. So I wanted to appear as something that was relatable to you. And I think that it, this gets me to something really important. And I want to be mindful. We talked about 90 minutes. Can, can you go 15 more minutes? Yeah, Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. good. Um, the, the, uh, so the entity is saying, look, I, I, I wanted to make this relatable to you. And whatever in the hell that means, we can project aliens, we can project, I think it's much weirder than that, whatever in the hell it is. I think it's really, really beyond our comprehension. But this gets into the idea that you really covered well in Beyond Allegory 
uh, more than allegory, sorry, um, is myth and the nature of myth, because that we we seem to be connected now out of the world of ones and zeros and Aristotelian logic, and now we're looking at synchronicity and meaning and myth and language and how we image. And so, can you can you speak a little bit about where myth comes into this territory? The value of myth is grounded on the admission, the realization, and then the acknowledgement that, um, again, that we are monkeys that popped into existence yesterday, and that, and that our conceptualizations are just convenient fictions, and they have inherent limitations. Uh, it's preposterous for us to think that our intellectual capacity, one of our many uh, uh, um, psychic functions, uh, that our intellect has evolved enough to capture everything that is salient about reality this is a this is a preposterous expectation <laughs> it you know it, it you could say it's arrogant it's not even arrogant it's so profoundly naive that you feel sorry for whoever makes this assumption that the intellect has evolved enough to capture everything that is salient about nature there is we have every reason to believe there is a great many things about nature that you cannot corral into rational models, into Grass, conceptual, yeah. Yeah, conceptual yeah. logical reasoning that you can corral within the intellect. There mm -hmm. are great many things going on that far transcend the abilities of the intellect. Is there any other way we could become indirectly, as the case may be, acquainted with these other things? that cannot be corralled into an intellectual conceptual narrative. I think there is because, you know, we popped yesterday, but the intellect popped last second. The intellect is very, very, very bloody recent. But our evolutionary lineage in the homo gen gender goes back 2 million that some are trying to push it to 3 million years ago now. And if you go beyond our genus, um, then it's 4 billion years of uh, biological evolution on this planet. And the, the very first living organisms needed to have some way to relate to their environment. In other words, you can speak of some form of cognition. And, and if you look at microscopic life under a, under a microscope, um, there is brilliant work done by a British scientist. Um, I forgot his name. If you uh, Ford, Professor Ford, uh, in which he shows just that. Uh, you look at the paramecium, and you see that the paramecium goes after food, runs away from danger. Uh, you know, uh, amoeba construct little vases out of mud particles from the bottom of the puddle where they live, and then they inhabit those little vases. They have complex ways of interacting within their environment. They have some form of cognition, which is not intellectual. So what I'm trying to say is that we inherit forms of cognition that are far, far older than the intellect, far older. And although they may be less reliable, at least we like to think that, than the intellect, they are probably much broader in their scope because they are so old and so much more rooted in nature than the intellect. The intellect's a cloud sort of here above our heads, right? But uh, we have other cognitive faculties, um, intuition mm -hmm. that sort of goes into the roots of the system and so it merges with nature beyond ourselves. Um, it, Myth is a way 
to relate to what can be sensed through those roots. So through those roots that far transcend the capabilities of the intellect, are far older than the intellect. These are things we don't think, but we sense about nature, about what's going on, about the context in which we are inserted. And we can sense them because we are rooted in them. We are not disconnected from reality. We are rooted in it. We are part of it. Um, we have those roots that sort of providing this sense data uh, that we cannot corral into a conceptual story, but we can sense nonetheless. Is there any way to communicate this in a culture? Yes, and we call it myth, metaphor. Narratives that are not to be taken literally, but are meant to evoke something in mind, but not in the intellect that can be recognized. Um, because if you, you're sensing it yourself and you hear a myth that evokes the same thing, you feel the resonance. It touches on that sense that you have and you recognize it and think, oh yeah, oh yeah, I recognize this. That's what myth does. And in that sense, although not taken seriously in this day and age in Western culture, in that specific sense, it is far more powerful than any scientific theory, any conceptual narrative, anything that you can call literal. It's, it far transcends that because it uses the roots of the system that are 4 billion years old, not 30,000, not yesterday. The intellect is a, you know, is a little kid that, uh, still wearing uh, breeches. <laughs> well, uh, define that for a second because you've talked about intellect and cognition. And you've also said, if I'm understanding correctly, that the idea of a conscious AI is not possible because of the differences between cognition and the intellect and these deeper senses, yes? Well, I think conscious AI is not possible because it's based on a fallacy, which is that consciousness can be created to begin with. I think consciousness is that within which everything is created. You know, you, yeah. it, it doesn't <laughs> need to be created. Right. Um, but um, the intellect is one of the side effects of symbolic thinking that has emerged in Homo sapiens sapiens about 30,000 years ago. Some people say 50. I think the consensus is more around 30,000 now, um, which is our ability to re-represent the contents of perception. In other words, not only to see a table, but to have the thought, I am seeing a table. That thought, that metacognitive thought is a re-representation of the contents of your own mind. So you sort of take the contents of your own mind, you re-represent them through concepts like a table uh, or the sky or to run. These are concepts that mirror or re-represent things that we perceive. Uh, it is this re-representation that allows us to have concepts. And then we weave these concepts together in an internal narrative through links of logic, associative links that follow the rules of logic. And we derive theories this way by using these re-represented concepts uh, joined together through links of logical derivation. That's conceptual reasoning. All of science is based on it. All of analytic philosophy is based on it. Not all of continental philosophy, but that's a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. Certainly spirituality is not based on it. Um, so that's intellectual reasoning. And in the West, we think that that's the only mode of cognition that has any validity. Everything else is just gullibility, illusion, 
paranormal woo-woo. Um, and I don't think it is because the intellect, again, it, it didn't pop yesterday, it popped the last second. Um, there are much older cognitive faculties uh, in, in the chain of life. And to say that all of them have been unreliable for 4 billion years, and only now we have something reliable, the intellect, is naive beyond belief. Um, and I think that's why myths are much older than rational reasoning. Myths have been around for as long as Homo sapiens has had culture, has had the ability to think symbolically and capture uh, um, their intuitions in a narrative, which is not really conceptual in the sense that we think of concepts today. It's allegorical. Well, it's more than allegorical. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. metaphorical. It operates through similarities, uh, similarities of evoked meaning. So when we say that, you know, God creates Adam and Eve from his rib and Eve took a bite of the tree of knowledge and then they were expelled from paradise. What this is saying, at least that, that's the mode of thinking that I believe was happening in in Babylon, when the exiled Jews wrote the Old Testament, the idea here is there is something about the story we are telling that is the same as something about the world and our mm. history. That's the point. Now, what that something is, is not told by the myth, because otherwise it would be a literal truth and it would be intellect. And the intellect has limitations. And what the myths do is precisely to try to operate beyond the limitations of you know, this little kid uh, we call intellectual reasoning. So the literal meaning cannot be conveyed. It cannot. It's not conveyed because it cannot be conveyed. It doesn't fit into literal concepts. Uh, it is a, an invitation for you to try to figure out what that is. And in simple mm -hmm. cases, that's obvious. Like, if I say, time is a river, you know exactly what I mean. But this is a myth. Time is not a river, all right? A river is a river. Time is time. But there is something about time that is the same as something about the river. What's the literal version of it? Time flows. In this case, we have a literal version. But in, in the, our culture's myths that we inherited from, you know, far beyond our ability to see the past and beyond the clouds of prehistory, uh, the mist of prehistory, what they are saying is time is a river, uh, but there is no concept like flow that allows us to translate that into a literal truth. The intellect cannot do that. So we just say time is a river and you figure out by using your intuitive faculties, what is this thing that is the same in a river and in time? That's what religions are doing, have always done. But instead, we interpret it literally, and we either mm -hmm. become an atheist or a fundamentalist. Ugh. And the whole world goes to shit. <laughs> and it, it's so unfortunate because the, even this idea, and if we had you know, another two hours, I would ask you all kinds of questions about psychedelics. But what we have are these glimpses of this terrifying, overwhelming, beyond comprehension reality that is revealed to us in a revelation, in a uh, apocalypsis, you know, this, uh, the death of our own perceptual limitations 
and a revealing of uh, the hidden aspects of reality that are beyond us. And and they have form, and it, it uses a language system from within our own subjectivity to, to communicate, to talk. I, I, I don't want to go off there because I want to go off there. But let me say, um, I, I'm really grateful that you have arranged this time. And I, I, I have a wonderful, this project is fantastic for me because what I get to do is listen back. And I get to listen back a lot. So I get to edit this conversation, and by next week I'll be from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., two days of, of the week next week. I'll be mining through this and experiencing it and carrying it with me, and I hope people listening, I know they'll be doing the same thing, and I can just say thank you for the work that you do, for the books you write, for the conversations that you have, and for your willingness to meet with me today. Bernardo, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh to be oh. here. Thanks for having me.